theology today, the study of mankind from a biblical perspective, and then uh, hopefully we'll get to a little bit of angelology. Um, I'm not, I don't have a lot on that because there's not a lot that you need to know uh, pertaining to your walk with the Lord. Um, so if we get to that today, we will. If not, we'll just continue next week. We're almost done with module two. This is session 13. Um, whether we split it or not, I don't know. We'll find out in a little bit. Uh, but then we have module 14. I'm sorry, module two, session 14, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. If you're reading ahead, um, I would get started on those. I believe in the syllabus there's uh, suggested chapters to read rather than reading all of it, which would be great if you read all of it. But um, uh, read the suggested chapters. That gives you at least a better overview. So let's pray and then we'll start our uh, most of our time on anthropology and a little bit of time on angelology. We'll see how it goes this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we come this morning, and while we would uh, like to focus exclusively heavenward, you have also taught us about ourselves. You've taught us about mankind and how important it is for us to understand what the Bible says about humanity, because our eternal destiny really uh, rests in in great degree upon uh, having a proper view of man, particularly the view of sin and the view of our need for salvation. And so, Lord, we pray that today as we look at the biblical view of mankind, that uh, you would bless this time, that you would remind us of the preciousness of life, you would remind us of what it means and what what the privilege it is to be made in the image of God. May we not squander that privilege, Lord. Thank you for those who are here. Thank you for those who are listening now and at later times. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So most of our time we'll spend on anthropology, and today I want to <clears throat> talk about a, a subject we don't talk about a lot because there's, I think we have a lot of assumptions in the church, and so and they're good assumptions, but we don't go and dig more deeply into it, and that is the beginning of human life and personhood. And so we want to dig into this, and this isn't so much a Bible study as we're kind of going all around with what the Bible says, and then we'll get to what the Bible says, but... There's differing views on the beginning of human life and personhood. Um, One view says that during the gestation process, sometime following conception, something called quickening happens. That this refers to a mother beginning to feel movement in whatever week that happens. Generally, 13th to the 20th week, that at that moment, that human life and um, personhood begins under this uh, category of of uh, during pregnancy you have the idea of viability the human life begins at the time that the fetus is capable of surviving outside the womb uh, the small problem with that view is that that's continually changing with technology isn't it so that can't be uh, the case as well uh, some would say when brain waves are present some believed uh, early philosophers believed that the fetus didn't become formed and begin to live until uh, 40 days after conception for a male and 80 days after conception for a female. So there we have sexism all the way even in the womb at that point. Uh, Augustine was even hesitant to say at which point the fetus became a human being. Um, But for him, aborting a fetus was a murder. Um, Aborting an unformed fetus fetus, though, earlier in the pregnancy was uh, considered a lesser sin, a lesser crime. Uh, How he made that distinction, I don't know. 
Thomas Aquinas distinguished between potential humanity and actual humanity. Um, and he allowed for abortions during the first trimester. Uh, abortion is not a 20th and 21st century uh, debate. This has been going on for 7,000 years, um, this debate. So the first view is that sometime during pregnancy, life and personhood begins. Now, why do we say life and personhood? Well, because nobody denies that there's a life in, in the womb. There's a heartbeat. There are brain waves. There are things that indicate life. So that's why we add in, but what about personhood? Is that, is that uh, thing in there a person? Another view says that human life and personhood begins at birth. Plato believed that a fetus became a human person once the umbilical cord was cut. That that's what it took. Um, for him, the killing of deformed infants at birth was allowed. And by the way, throughout all of history, almost every culture has felt that way, that a deformed baby can be killed, that that's just what you did. So that has been kind of the norm. Obviously, if you know a little bit of history, the United States Supreme Court in its 1973 Roe versus Wade decision declared that the term person as used in the United States Constitution in the 5th and the 14th Amendments, applies only at birth. That, that a, 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 a person is not a person until the person is born. And so the location of being right here and three feet away after you're born is what makes you a person. And then you have the view that personhood begins after birth with a minimal level of functioning. This view says that both a fetus and a newborn are potential persons, and in order to achieve full personhood, there has to be certain physical, spiritual, and social functions that, that can happen. And so you can, you can uh, hear this in one bioethicist named Michael Tooley. He said this, The unborn is merely a potential person. A human and a person are not automatically the same. A human being is simply a member of the biological species Homo sapiens. A person, however, possesses self-consciousness or an enduring sense of self since a newborn baby does not possess the concept of a continuing self. It is not a person. Michael Tooley believed that humans are what he called quasi-persons at around three months of age and they achieve full personhood at about one year. He also believes, however, in the equality of animals and persons. And so the killing of adult animals and a mature person, both of those are acts of murder. The killing of baby animals and baby people is a lesser uh, offense at some level. The founder of the animal liberation movement, a guy named Peter Singer, he says that a newborn must exist for at least 28 days before it can be said to possess the same rights as others. So what's the flaw with all of this? The flaw is, is that you decide what you believe, then you pick a set of rules that support that belief, and then you say, see, because my belief fits these rules that I made up, it must be true. That is the worst sort of circular reasoning. And so um, it's just all made up. And I would say today it, it used to be <clears throat> that uh, there was the argument that humans and animals are equal, from looking at our culture today, would you say that's the case? We would say that humans and animals have now flip-flopped in our culture, that animals are more, uh, have more worth than humans. 
because people will spend millions of dollars to save baby animals, um, all the while murdering millions and millions of baby humans. So uh, it's not just that there's a belief in the equality now. Uh, Mother Earth gave birth to animals, but there's so many humans, we can kill as many of those as we want. Kind of that belief system. So you see God's created order literally over time turned completely upside down, which is what, what uh, humanity tends to do. So what do we believe? Well, we believe obviously that life and personhood begins at conception. God's creation of a person is not a process. It's an event. And by the way, this has been the view of almost all Christians throughout church history. Um, the, the church has been long out of step with the rest of the world. Or can we put it this way? The world has been out of step with what the Bible says. One of the first uh, kind of discipleship tools or commentaries ever written was called the Didache. Uh, D-I-D-A-C-H-E. It just means the teaching, like uh, didactic. But the Didache, um, early to mid-2nd century, very, very early work, it says, Thou shalt not murder a child by abortion, nor kill that which was begotten. In other words, any child at any level of uh, after conception to kill that child is considered murder. At the very end of the first century, basically written at the same time as the Gospel of John, and although it's not scriptural, we have a, a letter called the letter of Barnabas, probably written by the actual Barnabas of, uh, of the book of Acts. But the letter of Barnabas says, a child shall not be killed before or after it is born. Why would, why would Christians be writing about this? Because in the Greco-Roman culture of the first and second century, killing infants was a right of a father. That you could just decide to kill your child at, up to a certain age, especially if it was a girl. And so uh, the church immediately was pushing back against this and saying, no, life begins at conception. And so any death of a child um, at the hands of another is murder. Clement of Alexandria He lived about 150 to 215 A.D. He said that the unborn is a person. Partly, uh, he takes his clue from Scripture that John the Baptist leaped in Elizabeth's womb in Luke 141. And so because of that, he said taking the life of the unborn is murder. Tertullian, 160 to 220, he believed that life begins at conception. John Chrysostom, the the golden-tongued one, the greatest preacher of the 4th century, He believed life begins at conception from Scripture. Jerome did. The Reformers, Martin Luther and John Calvin, believed that human life and personhood begin at conception. And even uh, the belief that personhood begins at conception became official dogma of the Catholic Church in 1869. That's why even, even the Catholics don't want to give their version of communion to uh, those who claim to be Catholic but support abortion. And so it uh, puts... puts uh, those who use their Catholic religion as some sort of political, uh, political help to them puts them in an odd position. So throughout uh, history, both Orthodox Christians and, and we would say cultic and heretical elements that have spun off from Christianity um, still hold that in common. Um, in fact, if you're having a conversation with a, with a, a dyed-in-the-wool Catholic and you 
uh, find yourself unable to find some point of commonality, you can go to this. Hey, where does life begin according to the Catholic Church? Well, life begins at conception. Hey, we have that in common. Why is that? That gets you back to an image of God discussion. An image of God discussion gets you back to how do you restore the image of God? Is it through good works or is it through by faith? So even with that little point of commonality can lead you to a discussion of the gospel. So let's talk about some biblical conclusions then. The Bible regards the unborn as human persons in a full sense. This isn't a, I'm sorry, I, I, I left one slide off there, so I'll just uh, let you copy that down if you want. I was behind by one. Um, biblical conclusions. The Bible regards the unborn as human persons in a full sense. I'll read you a couple of scriptures, and then the next slide, I think, will just give you the references. Yeah, so I'll read them to you, and then you can get caught up. Genesis 5, or 25 rather, 22 and 23. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? She went on to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And that is, of course, uh, uh, Rebecca with Jacob and Esau. They're treated as persons in the womb. The children are struggling together. And you can't even spank them when they're fighting in the womb. And yet there they were fighting. And, and so they're treated as not only as persons, but as persons who fight, even in the womb. I, I, so many of you moms, you, you tell me about, you know, I think this is going to be a feisty baby because you're, you're, when you're pregnant and the baby starts kicking, you know, I've, I've personally witnessed with a pregnant woman, her go, oh, like that, because that, that kick goes that way. And so there are persons in the Bible. Exodus 21, 22 through 25, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out and there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined and, and so forth. But if there's harm, you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. What does this mean? It means that if two men are fighting and one of them hits a pregnant woman and that child comes out and dies, that man is guilty of murder and will be executed. So what would happen if we executed everyone guilty of murdering a, a, a baby in the womb? We would have a country with fewer people in it, a lot fewer people. So the Bible says in the Old Testament, you kill an infant from the womb and you die. Isaiah 44, 24, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you, that's a personal pronoun, you from the womb. You were formed from the womb, not after the womb. Job 10, 8 through 11, I'll go ahead and put these references up here now. Job 10, 8 through 11, your hands fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay, and will you return me to the dust? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. This is an Old Testament um, euphemism for the act of making a child. There, there is the, there is the, uh, the, you poured me out like milk. We get this from the, the, the picture of male sperm and this idea of you did this. God, you took these little tiny microscopic parts and you put them together and you made me. And so Job affirms that he was made at the moment he was conceived. That was when he came together. Psalm 139, very familiar to us. 
Verse 13, such a beautiful picture. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, meaning in the womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there, were, there was none of them. That's a massive statement of biblical anthropology. When I was a, a kid, the only thing about knitting I knew was that it happened with two big needles. And that was my picture of God knitting together. These like needles going click, 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 click. And I didn't understand that. It's just a word that means to, to put something together. Uh, like, a, like, like, two, like I'm doing with my hands. That little parts come together and they're, they're interwoven. And so very, very clear statement. David speaks as if God had a relationship with him while he was in his mother's womb. And he did. Isaiah 49.1, the Lord called me from the womb and from the body of my mother. He named my name. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. From the womb, Jeremiah was appointed a prophet. Does that make him an exception when it comes to prophets? Yes, he and John the Baptist have that in common. But it proves his personhood. God saw him as a person from the womb. Now, some have said, well, the Bible doesn't give uh, you know, a scientific explanation concerning the beginning of human life. Well, that's because in the Bible, believers in Yahweh thought anybody was an idiot who didn't think life began at conception. There's no need to explain. That's like saying, well, the Bible doesn't explain how the sun works. Well, go outside for an hour at, in June and you'll see how the sun works. Everybody knew how it works. Just because the Bible doesn't give a scientific explanation for something doesn't mean it's not true. But to be very clear, all scientific things to which the Bible speaks is always accurate every time. The Bible does indicate, though, very clearly that the unborn child in the womb is fully human. Fully human. So it's not appropriate to make a distinction between humans and persons or to say that you can be biologically human without possessing full personhood. So you can't make that distinction, which, of course, brings us to the the question of our day is, can abortion be considered murder? And we would say yes. There are four criteria that determine murder. First of all, a person must be killed. A person must be killed intentionally. The victim is innocent, meaning it's not an official government judgment. It is not murder to execute a criminal. That is not murder. That is uh, the will of God. And an unlawful or a sinful motive must be behind the killing. An unlawful or sinful motive. Why do abortions happen? Because of the sinful motives of others. Either the mother or the grandparents or whoever's putting pressure on this, this little girl to have an abortion. Or, uh, I, I'm not ready for a baby. This is not the right time of life. So therefore, I'll murder my baby so that I can go get that corporate job I've always dreamed of. And so it's, it's no different than saying, there's two of us at a job interview. One of us is going to get the job. And the person doing the interviewing says, one of you will get this job no matter what happens. Oh, okay, just pull out a gun and blow the other person away. All right, I'm ready to start work. It is exactly the same. 
So can abortion be considered murder? Absolutely. So when, uh, when people say, well, you know, I'm a pretty good person. God's not going to judge me. I'm pretty good. I'm, after all, I'm neither murderer. Well, ask him, do you, believe, do you believe in abortion? Well, yes, I believe in the woman's right to choose. Then you are a murderer, according to scriptural standards. You are a murderer. You believe in murder. Therefore, you are a murderer. So uh, when people say, well, I'm not, I'm not a murderer. I'm not really that bad. Actually, most people are. In their heart, they are a murderer, and they, you support it, then you're a part of it. So I think we can make a very strong case that almost every abortion fulfills these criteria. Um, and I know people like to bring up the so-called exceptions. I, I don't spend a lot of time on that because the exceptions don't prove that all the other times aren't murder. Uh, it, d- it doesn't prove that. Uh, basically, the only exception, if you want to call it that, and it's a horrible, horrible choice, um, but I've read, done a little reading on this, that the exception supposedly is that when there's a choice between the life of the baby and the life of the mother. Do you know that happens so statistically at an insignificant level that it's basically almost non-existent from a st- uh, statistical standpoint? That's an almost completely made-up scenario. Yes, it happens on occasion, but not enough to even put, be a blip on the radar. What's the other big exception that, that people always talk about? Rape, incest, and all of that. So... The answer to a horrible crime is to commit a more horrible crime. Um, I, I have known somebody who is the product of a rape, and she was very glad that her mother decided to have her anyway because God made her. And how can that be? Well, God can't be a part of that. God's part of everything. And so I, I'm thankful. Like, like my own parents, if you knew my parents, they would be the last two people on planet Earth that should ever have gotten married. They figured that out 12 years later and ended up divorcing for horrible, sinful reasons. But you know what? I'm really glad that they ended up together because I'm here and God used that terrible marriage to bring some lives into the world. So that's the beginning of human life. What about the end? What about the end? Here's some different views of the end of life. The soul continues, but there's no continuation of the body. This view claims that the soul survives after death, but the body does not and will never be resurrected. Uh, Socrates viewed the body as a prison for the soul and that, that death was preferable, that the soul continues after, after death and the body was just something that was uh, a prison. Uh, Plato believed that the soul alone survived after death. Um, <clears throat> By the way, all these beliefs, some of them are, are ancient, but if you listen to the made-up theology of most people today, especially when a loved one dies, they go all the way back to, to ancient theology, or ancient uh, uh, bad theology. This idea here, the continuation of the soul, but no continuation of the body, there's no resurrection, that is the default position of most people today. How do we know that? Well, uncle so-and-so is watching over us, Right? What is that? That's that first belief. There's no sense of uncle so-and-so will be resurrected someday because he was a believer in Christ. It's just he's watching over us. And, and we go, go all the way back to um, Shintoism and Hinduism where we worship uh, the people who have gone before us instead of worshiping God. And so when you say, oh, these beliefs don't, don't uh, seem that relevant to today, I would say that first one is the prominent belief Today, people just don't describe it in those terms. 
There's the view of cessationism. This holds that life ceases at death when the body dies. That there is no more life. This is based on a, on a monistic view of man, meaning that man is just one thing, that, uh, that there's no soul distinct from the body, that when your body dies, um, that y- y- there's no soul that goes on after this. One uh, philosopher who believed this was Epicurus. Um, he wasn't an atheist. He was a polytheist. He believed in gods, but he didn't believe that the gods took, in, took a really active interest in the world and the affairs of people. Um, in fact, he said that religion was a barrier to a happy life because it fostered a fear of death with all of its emphasis on suffering and punishment. So for Epicurus, uh, his his idea of happiness was removing all fear of death, all worry about the afterlife because the terrors of religion are just fairy tales. So just enjoy your life now because when it's over, it's over. I've told this story before, but in the, the child care industry, caring for very, very difficult young people, I used to work alongside a dyed-in-the-wool atheist. And this atheist was one of the best caregivers with disturbed kids I've ever seen. And we had this conversation a hundred times. Wayne, why do you care? Why do you even care about these kids? In 60 years, they're just going to be dead. They're going to cease to exist. Why not just take a gun and shoot them all and put them out of their misery? And he never had a good answer except to say, well, I just want them to have a pretty good life. And then the next question would be, well, are they going to remember it at the end of their life? What are they living for? And the best answer he had was, well, at the end of your life, you want to be able to say, I did this, this, and this. And so if you end up walking in front of a cement mixer and the end of your life comes before you can even have a thought, does that mean that life was wasted? So it's a completely horrible view that really leads to all kinds of problems because if you're a, if you're a true cessationist, um, that means that life has no inherent value at all. And you may as well just do whatever. This view is very consistent with secular humanism, with naturalism, atheism, obviously. And then there's the view of annihilationism. This, this crosses more into our circles a little bit, into uh, religious circles. This position says that there's an immaterial aspect of man. There's something about us that is invisible, that survives death. Believers, and, and I'm using that term very generically, not in the orthodox Christian term, but just believers, those who are faithful to something or to someone, will inherit eternal life. But those who don't, the damned, they'll be snuffed out of existence. There's no eternal torment. This is the belief of Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe in annihilationism, that uh, if you're a pretty good person, you might inherit eternal life. If you're not, you'll just go out of existence. Boy, there's a lot of hope there. You know, that's, that's a thrilling message, isn't it? Then there's the belief in soul sleep, that there's an afterlife, but there's no intermediate state between physical death and the resurrection of the body. Instead, at death, the person goes into the ground, into an unconscious state while awaiting judgment. Who do we know who believes this? Seventh-day Adventists uh, believe in soul sleep. <clears throat> uh, and they get that primarily from the, uh, the word picture, the metaphor used in the Bible. They shall not all, what, sleep, but they shall be changed. Um, the Bible uses the metaphor of sleep to indicate that for the Christian, death is like taking a nap. It doesn't mean you're unconscious. It just means that it, there's nothing to fear. You know, you're not going home this afternoon and, and sweating bullets because you have to take a nap. We sweat bullets because we're about to die. And so the Bible says, no, it's like 
taking a nap. But it doesn't mean you're unconscious. So that's a, that's a classic case of turning a metaphor into something literal when it wasn't meant to do that. Then there's the view of reincarnation. This has been, this has been going on for thousands of years um, in Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, uh, all kinds of different variations. But this says basically that we come back as, uh, as a cockroach, an eagle, a geranium, a Buick, anything besides uh, who we are. This says that the soul upon death comes back to earth in another form, such as a person or an animal or an insect or an object. And so what that means is that your present life is probably not the first or the last life you will have. What does this do to your view of human life? It denigrates it. You know, somebody, somebody gets a horrible tragedy happens. Oh, well, well, they're coming back. And so you stop grieving death and you stop celebrating life. And so it's a, it's a terrible view. Then there's the view of an entrance into an intermediate state. And I don't seem to have a slide for that. That's odd that the best view is the one I don't have a slide for. So you'll just have to listen to this one. Whoop, hang on a second. Okay, uh, so at the end of that list where it says, um, boy, I really messed this up, didn't I? This is feared, final, and often unexpected. How did I go? Oh, okay. I'm so glad I don't. This is why I don't use PowerPoint when I preach. Because these things happen. It is Murphy's Law. Okay, here we are. Um, Reincarnation. So right at the bottom of reincarnation, there should be one more bullet point. I don't know why this isn't on here. But this is the belief in entrance into an intermediate state. Entrance into an intermediate state. What this says is that those who believe in an intermediate state, each person is composed of at least two parts. There's a physical part of us and a non-material element to us. Uh, Whether you divide that in the soul or spirit, that's irrelevant right now. At death, the body goes into the ground, but the soul and spirit enters a preliminary place of either blessing or torment. And during this period, each person exists in a recognizable spirit form of some sort. And with the return of Christ, though, the soul and spirit will be rejoined with a resurrected body to experience either the joys of a new heaven and a new earth or the torment of a lake of fire. We're being very broad and very general here. Now, there's a part here you may not have heard before, and that is the the soul or the spirit entering a preliminary place of blessing or torment. There's a possibility of some sort of intermediate uh, physical existence. Um, there is a belief that uh, Hades in the Bible, for example, is divided into two parts. The parts for the people who believed on Christ, the parts for people who don't. Some would say that the, that the part of Hades for those who believed on Christ has been emptied at the cross and all go to heaven now. We would affirm definitely the last part because the thief on the cross said, um, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, this day you will be with me where? In paradise, in heaven. So whether you believe in the, that division or not, that, that side of Hades, if you want to put it that way, is empty. Uh, where do we get that? Well, that's basically based on one passage, and that's Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus uh, and Abraham able to converse with one another. So I, I don't know. That's a, that's a little bit of a, a very uh, thin argument. We would make a very strong argument, though, that there is an intermediate uh, existence place for those who die not in faith. 
Um, the Bible calls that place Hades. It is different than the lake of fire. It is a different place than hell. Revelation 6 says that non-resurrected saints are wearing robes. Sorry, let me come back to that in a minute. Um, Revelation 20 says that death and Hades, it is a place, are thrown into the lake of fire. We have one passage, again, Luke 16, that gives us information about Hades for the unbeliever, and it is very similar to the lake of fire. There are flames burning the rich man, and he's, he's in torment. But death, Hades, is a different place in the lake of fire. Hades is thrown into the lake of fire. The way I've heard this explained the best is that Hades is an awful waiting room that gives you an indication of what the lake of fire will be like. Now, is there, is, is there a good case for that? Yeah, I think there's a very good case for it. Um, simply because the lake of fire is reserved for the final judgment. Who is in hell right now? It's kind of a trick question. According to scripture, nobody. The first two people to go there will be the Antichrist and the false prophet from the Great Tribulation. After that, then, Satan will follow, and at the Great White Throne Judgment, death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire. So it is awaiting uh, being filled at this moment. And, of course, Roman Catholic theology added in this idea of purgatory. It's sort of a Hades-like place, except you get to... Uh, you get to keep earning your salvation, and then eventually graduate from purgatory. Purgatory doesn't exist. It's just a way uh, for the Catholics to still get money from people who are really bad. That's basically what, what it's for. Well, hey, yeah, you can as long as you're giving a lot, you can live a horrible life, and you have another chance afterwards. So there's no sense of warning uh, that comes with that. So um, back, to, uh, back to this intermediate physical existence. And I've talked about this a lot, but I want to kind of just go on a tangent here for a moment. Do we, at the moment of our death, become an invisible spirit? And do we go to heaven and somehow we are just a bunch of invisible spirits? Well, I, I like the, the phrase that I used is a recognizable spirit existence. And why do we say that? Well, obviously, when we're putting a person's body in the ground or cremating that person, there has been a separation of the body from the soul, from the spirit. But does that mean that in heaven that it's like Casper the Friendly Ghost and just all these wonderful ghosts who are sinless uh, running around or flying around or however that looks. Scripture does not indicate that. And we have a couple of clues. Before the resurrection, the resurrection hasn't happened yet. Before the resurrection, Peter, James, and John went with Jesus to the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus was transfigured before them in Matthew 17. And who else was there? Moses and Elijah. Peter, James, and John didn't say, look, I can see through them. He didn't say, look, they're hovering off the ground. They were standing there in some sort of recognizable physical body. Now, the phrase we've used before is, I don't know if we get a rent a body or what we get. There's clearly a resurrection coming, but there is a physical reality as well. Heaven as it is right now is not merely just this this invisible ethereal place that has physical things in it. We've talked about this before. It is a physical place with a physical throne room, with physical trees, physical things, physical animals. Uh, we've gone through this list before through Scripture. One of the things in heaven, unresurrected, non-resurrected saints from the Great Tribulation, this is still in the future, but they're described as having not been resurrected yet. Revelation 6, they're pictured 
as being A, visible, and B, wearing clothing, wearing white robes. And they're told to wait in a specific location in heaven. So this does not seem to indicate uh, this sort of ethereal, invisible existence. Now, what does this mean for the resurrection? I don't know exactly, but sometimes when you have a conundrum from the Bible, you simply list the facts. Fact number one, we will not be invisible spirits just floating around. Fact number two, we will have some sort of physical, physically recognizable existence. Fact number three, we will have an ultimate resurrection when Christ returns at the resurrection and rapture event. So those three can all be true together. Um, Moses and Elijah, uh, they were recognizable. How did Peter, James, and John know that it was them? They'd never met them before. That's just one of the benefits of eternity. Isn't, isn't that going to be great? Apparently, you won't have to introduce yourself to anybody. They'll, everybody will know you. You'll know everyone. And I know there'll be some surprises. Wow, I can't believe you're here. You know, praise God for grace. And they'll be, well, I can't believe you're here. So in that intermediate state, I, this is important to me. This is what I, I'm going to put this in the top 10 most important things for me as a pastor to convey to you that heaven even as it is now, before the millennial kingdom, before the new heavens and the new earth, heaven as it is now is not this mysterious, dark, ethereal, uh, invisible place. It is a physical place where you will see all who have gone before you. You will meet with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is um, what the, the, the Jews call the third heaven. First heaven is the air we breathe. Second heaven is outer space. The third heaven, which they considered a place, a physical place, is where you will be. How does that interact with our ultimate resurrection? I don't know. I don't think I'm going to care. But you're not going to be flying around through people and weird stuff like that. There are physical things there, and you're one of them. Um, And yet, your body will be left on earth until the resurrection. If I could make one educated guess as to the ultimate connection, the ultimate connection is whatever... Whatever body Moses and Elijah uh, had, now obviously Elijah didn't die, so he may be not one we can talk about, but Moses died. Moses died. There was a fight over his body. The book of Jude says that in the angelic realm they fought over his body because it is important to God to restore his original purpose for you, which was for the body you have right now to live forever. And so whatever physical form you take in heaven that ultimate purpose has not yet been fulfilled because you're buried somewhere here on earth and when you as a person the spiritual part of you and whatever rent a body you have however that works are reunited with a glorified perfected resurrected you the perfected ultimate original version of yourself then god's redemptive plan has been completed and so I think that's the connection, that, that he doesn't lose anything. It's not going to be, hey, this, have you ever rented a car and you hate your own car after that? No, it's you have your rent-a-body, but the ultimate is that what God made you to be originally, to live forever in the body you have now, in the body in which you were conceived. That's God's ultimate redemptive plan. So that's, I think that's the connection, if that kind of makes sense. So how do we view death then? How do we view death? Well, let's give some biblical perspectives on death. It is the end of a person's temporal existence. And when we say temporal, um, I think that word is misleading sometimes to us. Temporal is not related to the word temporary. Temporal is related to the word time. 
So when we say temporal existence um, in current time and space. And so when somebody dies, you don't lose them. You lose contact with them. They're just in a different place. Discussion of death involves an interaction, an intersection here between anthropology and hamartiology, the doctrine of sin. Because of one man's sin, death entered into the world. Romans 5.12. And so anytime you're discussing death, you have to also discuss sin, which is one of the reasons we don't hold to any view of creation that says that death came before sin. Death is the result of sin, not the other way around. With the exception of those alive at the times, time of the Lord's return, the time of the rapture, death is inevitable for everyone. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 and 2 says that there is a time to be born and a time to die. And I'll tell you, I think about this every single Sunday. One of, one of my duties, I believe, on the Lord's day is to prepare you for your own death. That's one of my duties. I, I want, my hope and dream is to get you to the point to where you're more excited to die than you are to be alive. That's what, that's what I'm hoping for. And that's part of why we get together on the Lord's day. Have you ever heard this? Oh, death is natural. Well, it kind of is. It's natural in the fact that it happens to 100% of humans. Did you know that 100% of people who got COVID in the last year will die? Either of COVID or something else. COVID isn't the issue. The fact that they're going to die anyway is the issue. But it's not really natural, is it? It's unnatural. It's, it's horrific. It's natural because it happens to everyone, but it's unnatural. It severs the body and the soul. This was a unity that God intended people to possess for all time. And yet, because death entered into the world, now your body is separated from your soul. You're made as an eternal, immortal being. There are no uh, mortal humans. We're all immortal. And so because your body is filled with sin, it's going to die. And yet your soul continues on and on in one of two places. It's unnatural. God didn't create people so that they would die. Um, death is an intrusion. It's, a, it's an unwelcome guest into creation. In the eternal state, what goes away? Death is no longer part of the universe. Revelation 21.4, that is done. It'll be, a, it'll be a distant memory, if even that. And so since God created humans for life, you know how the Bible views death? The Bible says it's a curse and it's an enemy. What's the last enemy to be defeated according to 1 Corinthians 15? Death. That's the last one. How do do people feel about death? It's feared. It's feared. It's final. It's unexpected. We're not to have a glib view of death. I'll tell you what. Talking about death is a, is a great opener for a gospel conversation. To say, you know, what are you going to do in the last five seconds of your life? What are, what are your thoughts going to be? It's, it's funny where people will go with that, but it does bring a very, a very sobering uh, view of self. And so it's a great way to open the conversation. In line at Starbucks, when do you think you're going to die? I mean, that'll get you right to serious stuff very quickly. Isn't that better than God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? God loves you, but his plan is for you to come to faith in Christ because the plan for your life is not a good one. The plan for your life is that you die and go into eternal torment. And so so we need to avoid that. We also know that death is under God's sovereign control. 
1 Samuel 2.6, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Job 12.10, in whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? Psalm 90, verse 3, you turn man back into dust and you say, return, O children of men. Death occurs when the person takes his final breath. Job 14.10, and I know that we have lots and lots of uh, bioethical discussions about, well, what about when somebody's on the machine and that's the only thing keeping them alive? Uh, I know for me, the advanced directive I have is if a machine's the only thing keeping me alive, why would you keep me here? And I'm not even certain I'm here anyway. Um, I don't know how that works. I mean, we have so much technology, you can keep a heart beating. And who knows if somebody in heaven is yelling down going, unplug it, I haven't been there in three days. I don't know, but for me, unplug it. I mean, you know, if, I, if I'm blinking a lot, don't unplug it. But uh, <laughs> just, you know, be reasonable. But according to Scripture, when you take your final breath, you die. You die. By the way, one of the reasons that traditionally almost every culture leaves a dead body in the home is, is to make sure that that person's actually dead. To, to make sure. And there have been a few cases where people have awakened. And that's, that's very rare though. But generally speaking, the Bible says when you take your final breath, there are three types of death that the Bible discusses. Spiritual death. This is the state of spiritual separation from God because of sin that occurs for those who are physically alive and not believers. What does this mean? You're born in spiritual death. Ephesians 2.1, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. This is why the Arminian belief that you can somehow logically decide to make yourself alive in Christ is utterly ludicrous. This is my first lesson in Greek ever was the pastor I was listening to. He said that the Greek word for dead means dead. There is no life in a dead person. There's nothing in them that can reach out to God. There's nothing in them that can even logically believe that I have a sin problem. That belief must come through the enlivening of the Holy Spirit. We have been made alive in Christ. So there's spiritual death. Then there's physical death. Physical death is what occurs um, when critical biological functions stop. Physical death is, is obvious to us. Eternal death, the worst of all. This is eternal torment for those who die in unbelief. In other words, spiritual death never stops and it goes on into eternal death. So what comes after death? Well, we have an intermediate state in a recognizable form in which the soul and spirit exist in some way that we can see. And I just put a bunch of references up there for you. I'll just read a couple of them. I've already talked about some of these. Uh, Luke twenty three forty three. Jesus told the thief on the cross that that day he would be with Jesus in paradise. Uh, Acts seven fifty seven fifty nine and sixty. Stephen's spirit was received into heaven after he was martyred. But you remember the vision of Stephen? He saw Christ at the throne. He was seeing a physical place. He wasn't seeing a bunch of ghosts. He was seeing a physical place. Second Corinthians five eight. Paul said that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord doesn't mean that we don't have some sort of recognizable form. Philippians 1, 22 through 24, Paul said that to depart and be with Christ is much better than living on earth. There's a, I can't remember which one it is, but there's a chapter in uh, my book, Preparing for Heaven, where I talk about some of the metaphors for dying that the Bible uses. Things like taking a journey, um, going home, taking a nap, 
all these very warm and very lovely metaphors. So if we could take anything away from this, um, we would say, don't fear death. Hey, we're not excited about the process, but don't fear death itself at all. And then what happens? Later comes the resurrection of the body. The resurrection of the body doesn't take place in the intermediate state, but it does take place in in connection with the second coming of Christ. And and that's a broad statement. Let me me, uh, take that apart just a little bit. When we say the second coming in our circles, we tend to think in great detail. When most people say the second coming, generally that speaks of the parousia event, just the coming of Christ in general. We divide that into the rapture of the church uh, in which... Christ comes, we meet him in the air. Seven years later, then we have the rapture, resurrection, or I'm sorry, we have, uh, we have the full coming of Christ. Rapture and resurrection happens first. I've made this case before in other contexts. Then at the second coming, uh, you have um, the resurrected people coming with Christ. So will there be a time where you are in heaven in a resurrected body? That time will be there. What happens then? Revelation 19 Jesus mounts on the white horse and all of his army, the armies of heaven clothed in white linen, fine and clean, which is the righteous deeds of the saints coming back with him. So uh, the resurrection of the body doesn't take place in the intermediate state, but generally speaking, at the end of all things, that's when that happens. And I put a bunch of scripture references. And then the end of everything for everyone is endless eternal life, either in heaven or in hell. Heaven will be redefined as the new heavens and the new earth. Hell, you know, it's interesting. The Bible never says where it is. The Bible never, it has to be somewhere, at least in our our thinking. My theory is, is that one of the judgments of God, even upon Israel, what did God do to Israel? He took away their home. He took away their place. They didn't belong anywhere. Hell is very much the sense of I don't belong anywhere except here. I have no belonging in the goodness of the, the, the eternal life with God. So that is uh, the beginning and the end of life. Um, I think I'm going to just wait on, on doing angels and might even uh, next time take a few questions on the beginning and end of life. But I want to do that now just for a minute. Uh, what questions do you have either beginning or end of life in anthropology? And we'll do that first. Yeah, they, oh, sorry. Uh, Nate, then David. Sure. So the, the question is basically uh, 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of physical things at the end, um, but in very spiritual terms. So how, what, how, what do we base that on? Let me give you two factors to consider. First of all, the, the easy one, which Nate brought up. Isn't it great that we have an example of a glorified body, the Lord Jesus Christ, just doing some cool stuff? 
uh, going from one place to another. It never says he walked through walls. It just says that he appeared from one place to another. I don't know if we'll get to do that or not. I kind of hope so. Wouldn't that be cool? You know, just a, hi, you know, I'm right there. Uh, but he also ate food and he drank water. He didn't need it, but he enjoyed it. Um, obviously, he was able to ascend into heaven. I don't know if we'll get to do that exactly. Um, so yes, we have an example of a glorified body, which by the way, proves that it is possible for those with a glorified body to live in the same sphere, in the same realm as those without glorified bodies. That's exactly what will be happening during the millennial reign of Christ. We're going to talk about that tonight. But the second factor I would, I would have you consider is the fact that the division of physical and spiritual is essentially a sinful human invention. What is the point of redemptive history? The point of redemptive history is that God made mankind as a physical slash spiritual being in one package and the separation of body and spirit is an indication of the curse of sin. And we see this in what uh, Randy Alcorn coined a term he called Christoplatonism. It's a, the Christianized idea of Plato's philosophy that physical things are bad and spiritual things are good. That's why Christians throughout history have had such a hard time picturing heaven as a physical place. Because, uh, because they say, well, the physical is bad, so the spiritual is good, so I'm just looking forward to, to getting rid of my body. I don't want to get rid of my body. I want a new one. There's a big difference. Christoplatonism has also had a major impact even on theology. Christoplatonism, I believe, has, um, has contributed to reinterpreting Old Testament passages about land and crops and vineyards into super spiritual things that the land is actually just the church and the vineyard is the glory of Christ. So however you want to, to put those things um, I think it's contributed to seeing physical things as somehow lesser. But the fact is, is that spiritual and physical, it's all the same. It is one thing. And so it it is a product of our misguided thinking that we continually separate those. When in fact, the goal of redemptive history is to put it all back together. So those are two factors I would consider. Does that help a little? And then David, you had a question as well? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) In the back of the room. Okay, that's a great question. Uh, the basic question is, the Bible says that all people will be judged. So, here, here's the, the simplified version. If you die in unbelief, you will pay the penalty for your own sins. Revelation 20 says the books will be opened. What is that? That is the, the heavenly memory of every sinful thought, deed, and word you've ever committed. Um, for some of you, that's libraries will be opened. Okay, and you will pay for those sins. The judgment will be poured on you. For the Christian, our judgment, the, 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 the Bema judgment, um, has to do with separating out the worthless aspects of your life from the things that you did as a believer that were worthwhile and that, that are to be rewarded. 1 Corinthians 3 gives a warning that some will be saved as through fire that they'll go to heaven with a loincloth, basically, that uh, their reward will be minimal, but they're still in heaven and they're still covered by the blood of Christ. So, David, your question on judgment, 
judgment comes, um, and, and the Bible uses judgment in two ways. Judgment as a decision that you're, that, that you're guilty or not guilty, and then judgment as the consequences, the carrying out of a sentence. So you have to kind of separate those two. But if the judgment, as far as a decision, is that you are in Christ, then all your sins are covered. And the judgment, as far as consequences, fell on Christ at the cross, and you have none of that. And you are seen as perfectly righteous. In fact, that's your position now. That's the beauty of the, the doctrine of justification. You are seen as, right now, as righteous as Christ is. For the unbeliever, the decision, the judgment, is that you have not received Christ as your Savior. You have rejected the offer of salvation. Therefore, the judgment, the penalty, will be that you will pay the penalty for your own sins. And since you can't pay it because sins are eternal, you will be in eternal torment. So, will we stand before God? Yes, I, I uh, shudder under James 3.1 every week. Not many of you should become teachers for we will incur a greater what? Judgment. What does that mean? It means that I believe that I will be held to account by God for the works that I did as a pastor. And so that, that, that's terrifying. But it's also uh, comforting that I will be held to account by my heavenly father. And when that little transaction is done, what will I hear? I will hear... Come into your reward. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, I might be the one going in there with nothing but the loincloth, but I'm in heaven. I'm in heaven. So that's so judgment is a very general word that has to be used in a lot of different ways. We've got to be done. I'm sorry for that. We'll do some more questions next time. We'll just kind of pick this up and then we'll do angelology as well. Thank you, Father, for this time to look at anthropology. We pray, Lord, that the ultimate end of even this discussion would be for the Christian gratitude that we who were once in sin are now in Christ and for the unbeliever perhaps hearing this, Lord, I pray that they would cry out to, to the Lord Jesus for forgiveness because in our sinful state we were headed toward hell and that is still the fate of every unbeliever unless they would come to faith. We pray, Lord, that you would do these things for your glory and honor. Amen.